3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast here on 855am 3CR Radical Radio. You are joined with Rob, Grace and James. To start us off, Grace, how was your weekend? It was good, I think. I had quite a... In- Quite an enjoyable time. My mom and my brother came over ah. for my graduation that is happening this Thursday. So, yeah, uh, I was originally supposed to meet them on Saturday, but their flight got delayed for like almost a day. Oh, boy. So that was that was a fruitful time, waiting for them for a day at home, mm-hmm. not, not, not knowing when they got actually going to arrive. But they arrived yesterday morning, so that's all good now. So, yes, that was my weekend update. How was yours, Rob? Good. Um, I went up to, not really much to report on Saturday I went to, but I went up to Mornington on yesterday. I was going to say Sunday, but it was yesterday. Um, And then last night I went to see a bit of a, I went to a hardcore punk show. Um, Saw this California band called Drain. um, Wow. Which was just amazing. Yeah? Yeah, really fun. Really fun, really cool um, punk show. Um, so I'm a little bit sleepy this morning. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, that's about it. That's really pretty much all I did. What did you do, James? Uh, well, I went to the Meredith Music Festival, the one and only festival here in Melbourne that's nice. just phenomenal. Mm. And it was a bit of a struggle. The first day there was damaging winds and it was pretty hot. Yeah. The second day it rained all day. Yeah. So it was a bit of a struggle. And I've been pretty low energy lately, so I was a bit like, oh mm. boy, mm. this is tough. But it was a great time. Um, had a great one. Saw lots of bands. Saw Kraftwerk play, which was nice. just phenomenal. Saw Caroline Polachek, which was big. Her voice was amazing. Yeah, well. And her moves were amazing. So it was a pretty good weekend. And then I came home and basically slept until now. Mm. So again, like you, Rob, bit sleepy, but we're good to go. <laughs> I think we're all sleepy. Yeah. I'm feeling as well. I have a bit of migraine too. So. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's the worst. Well, we're taking it nice and easy today here on Monday Breakfast. Uh, let's jump to some headlines. Yep. So, first up, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaget has uh, resigned in a shocking announcement. She is stepping down as leave. She is said that she's going to be stepping down as leader and is leaving for good. Originally, what was meant to be a press conference about Cyclone Jasper on yes, Sunday yesterday, she has decided that it was, quote, right time to move on. Uh, Pelagé said that the, she will finish at the end of this week, uh, which was a lot yesterday, as Premier, and the most next Premier of Queensland is for caucus to decide on Friday, given MPs time to come back. And then next up... University of New South Wales is to be investigated over preliminary research or misconduct inquiry that has 
been taking for over two years now. The Australian Research Integrity Committee is set to investigate the handling of an alleged case of research misconduct. The allegation was first brought up to attention in September 2021 by two research integrity experts, which involves scientists from the University Centre for Health Brain Aging. But now more than two years later, they have not completed preliminary assessment of the allegation, the first step in determining if a full investigation is required. The UN's Secretary General Antonio Guterres has vowed to continue the UN's push for a ceasefire in Gaza following America's veto on Friday evening. At the Doha Forum in Qatar, Guterres said the Security Council was paralyzed by geostrategic divisions, adding that the world institutions are weak and outdated, caught in a time warp reflecting a reality of 80 years ago. He wanted to explain why he invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter, which allows the Secretary-General to raise to the Security Council matters that may threaten international peace and security. And despite the veto, he will continue the push for a ceasefire, but the path forward is not certain yet. In other news, Chris Bowen, uh, Australia's climate minister, tells COP28 to end the use of fossil fuels in energy production as talks try to break deadlock. He says that the summit must aim to keep the 1.5 degree goal alive so Pacific countries are not swallowed by the seas. The Australian climate minister, Chris Bowen, has told nearly 200 countries at COP28 summit that the use of fossil fuels in energy production must end. This comes as president of COP, Sultan Al-Jabbar, convened a majlis, a meeting in the traditional form of an elders' conference in the United Arab Emirates between all countries late on Sunday in an attempt to reach consensus on points of deadlock, including whether fossil fuels should be phased out or phased down. The two-week conference has just had a day and a half of official negotiating time left before it is scheduled to end on Tuesday morning. So we've got a big show for you today. Rob, we've got our first interview coming up. What, what's that about? Mm. So we're actually going to play um, Kanagi from Tuesday Breakfast interview with lecturer and researcher Dr. Brandy Cochrane on the Forcibly Displaced People's Network reports uh, in- Inhabiting Two Worlds at Once report, which looks at the experiences of LGBTQI plus settlement in Australia. Um, we'll be diving into that. Let's take it away. Dr. Brandy Cochran is a senior lecturer and researcher in criminology at Victoria University, a researcher for the Forcibly Displaced People's Network, or FDPN, and the first Australian-registered LGBTIQ plus refugee-led organisation. Brandy is joining us this morning to talk about FDPN's Inhabiting Two Worlds at Once report, which looks at the experiences of LGBTQIA plus refugees resettling here in Australia. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast, Brandy. Thanks, Kanegi. Um, good morning. Good morning. Um, great to have you back on the show. Um, I thought we could start by just talking about the survey that led to this report. So we've spoken with you as well as Renee from FDPN here on the show before. Um, and FDPN did a survey in 2021, which was the first of its kind in Australia, um, can you tell our listeners who may not be aware about the survey, the sort of questions that were asked and what data was collected? 
Yeah, no problem at all. So, as you said, um, we undertook the survey in 2021 um, over um, the course of several months, um, and we collected data from you know people who are forcibly displaced and were resettling in Australia. So, as you said, from the LGBTIQA plus population, and this was a nationwide survey. Um, and, you know, again, as you said, there's not been one like this in Australia before. So really important to understand this experience because we were hearing a lot, oh, well, um, in the work that I do with FTPN, oh, well, we don't have any data on this. Is this actually a big population? So um, luckily I was invited on board early um, by Tina and Renee um, to uh, get this into place. So we asked questions, you know, about migration status, age, you know, those kind of demographic things you think of more broadly. But also we wanted to ask them about experiences of settlement. So we looked at a number of different um, pieces for that, um, thinking a little bit about, you know, mental health, physical health, education, employment access, um, then different kind of support services. Um, talked a little bit about homelessness, things like that. But then also looked um, distinctly at um, access, or sorry, not access, um, discrimination in these different kinds of services that people found. Um, we also looked at experiences um, of violence um, that people um, had both before they arrived in Australia, but also since they've been in Australia too. So we looked at a lot of different pieces um, in order to get a really actual full picture. Because there's a number of surveys that ask questions of the LGBTIQA plus population, um, none of which um, were asking about you know, visa status, um, or, you know, if you were a refugee or things like that. And then on the other side of that, you had refugee studies that were asking questions about, you know, why are you a refugee? Are you, you know, you know, what's your visa status? Things like that. So we wanted to bring, you know, all of that together um, within that survey. Yeah, definitely. It's um, an important intersection and experience to understand, I think, for refugees here in Australia. Um what were some of the key findings from the report, just as a kind of general overview? Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think we found, you know, that um, some of what we think of is that, you know, I think people often think once folks get to, you know, Australia, especially, you know, if they're refugees, that they're going to be having this kind of more positive experience um, when they're here in Australia. Um but, you know, what we found is that, um, unfortunately, um, people were much more likely to experience, you know, violence, discrimination, um, different kinds of hate crimes and things like that than obviously the average population. And, and that was, you know, that, I think that was one big finding that, you know, we were um, all a bit surprised about, um, especially around that, that violence that's occurring here, which was just so much more huge than it was for citizen populations or for LGBTIQA plus more broadly, um, sorry, people broadly. And so I think that's some of the kind of stuff that we found there too. Um, we also found some interesting things around um, age of participants, um, which I think there's often a lot of talk about how we need to focus on, on young people. Um, but we found actually there was a lot of um, people of, of a variety of different ages. Some of them obviously had been here for a while, but some who, you know, were able to, were actually not able to make that change to move um, or claim refugee status until they got a bit older or had to do it through a different avenue rather than just the regular refugee visa process as well. Yeah, I think um, that's I think that's really yeah. interesting with those intersections um, because 
And and to hear that you know they were facing far more violence and discrimination than anticipated by them mm-hmm. or or F, um, FDPN. Um, but I guess it kind of just thinking about it now as you're talking, it makes it makes sense because I feel like a lot of um, these people would also be facing cultural isolation from their own communities um, for being in the LGBT community. Um, and then on the other other side, they've got, you know, possibly language barriers or, you know, they're not necessarily feeling the same sense of belonging they would to the broader Australian culture as they would to their own specific cultures. Um, is that something that you found? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, those intersections you just talked about there are so important because, you know, people, we would find people, oh, feel I feel comfortable in my cultural setting as long as I don't disclose my LGBTIQA plus identity, or I feel comfortable, you know, in LGBTIQA plus settings, but not if I say that I'm a refugee. Um, and, you know, trying to find the, the overlaps of those um, spaces where people could feel comfortable being all of those things um, was something that we found was really difficult and why things that are peer-led, um, where people can get together with other people like them, were, were really important um, to people we talked to in the survey. Is they were, we found, you know, they're hiding parts of themselves um, in order to feel, you know, safe in in community, um, which is, you know, a really, I think, another really interesting finding. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I saw as well in the report that there were some specific findings for trans people and women. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, um, yeah, we did two kind of short reports, but um, if you have a look at the website, you'll see both of those. Um, both of them, uh, the work was presented recently at two different um, conferences, one that specifically was looking at refugee women's outcomes and one that was looking um, at trans health more broadly. But we wanted to break down some of the findings so that um, we could you know, kind of share what was going on there with different kinds of communities. And so I think the first one I'll start with um, is the one around uh, trans people more broadly. So um, about 27% of the total sample of the survey was trans forcibly displaced people. And um, so again, a high number, but a number that you know would reflect the the population um, more broadly, especially if we're talking about um, refugee visas, mm-hmm. um, or as much as we know about them. Um, and people, you know, being a trans person doesn't mean you know you're you're one kind of trans, as they say. You know, it's you know we had women, men, non-binary people, um, or other people had specific responses that they identified as another term to describe gender. And that's one thing we tried to do with this survey was making sure wherever possible, people could fill in whatever, you know, they wanted to. Um, and we had uh, two intersex people um, in our survey, um, and they were they also identified as trans as well. So it's important to kind of understand that people um, aren't just often the one, the one thing. Um, people um, have multiple identities. And the most common um, visa type was the, the bridging visas, um, again, um, a lot of people um, were, on, were in similar um, visas as well, but they made up half of permanent visas. Unfortunately, though, the trans people um, comprised only approximately one-third of all people holding citizenship, so that was much lower than for other groups. So actually having citizenship and things like that um, was, was different um, in the trans people who answered you know, the LGBTI UA plus survey that we did today, which I think is kind of interesting. Also, we found that a number of trans people um, 
and compared to the rest of the survey, were more likely to have been undocumented while living in Australia, which I think is another important thing when we think about, you know, delivery of services, access to homelessness services, access to health services. Um, it's important to understand that, you know, a large portion of people um, that had lived undocumented were also tra- are also trans people. Um, just kind of thinking on that, I think, is another important um, piece that we'd want to bring about specifically um, in regards to trans people. Um, I think the other really important piece when we talk about trans people, and I'd say this reflects probably the broader population, is that their self-reported mental health was much was much worse um, than um, so the other groups in our survey, the other um, folks in the survey. So um, even though those with permanent visas were better, uh, you know, reported better than average mental health, those with temporary visas were worse. But overall, still, when you controlled for those sorts of things, trans people were most were more likely to have, um, yeah, worse mental health um, outcomes. Or sorry, it's self-reported. So worse mental health than than other people in the survey, and I think that's really important again to understand um, the importance of that as well. So between that and then the, the considering the non-permanent, or sorry, being um, undocumented, I think those two things are really are really important to understand when we're thinking about um, trans people who might need access to services and things like that. Absolutely, that um, I can imagine. You know, in Australia. It's not uh, particularly accepting either for trans people. Um, so I can imagine, you know, if you have all the other barriers of being a refugee and having an uncertain visa, um, in and amongst so many other things that you mentioned, uh, that would have a pretty um, devastating impact on mental health. Um, yeah. What, what were oh, some? Of, what were some of the findings for women? Um, I might just do one more point oh, on sure. sorry, trans people, just because I think this one's really important um, for people to understand, especially in service delivery, is that we had three um, people, three trans people in the survey, trans men, say that they had um, had instances of female genital mutilation um, prior to coming to Australia. Mm. So there's been, you know, that's often a topic where people really want to talk about it and talk about supporting women, but actually there's there's more complications there um, than we think it is, but if we only target our understanding of, of FGM and responses to FGM to women, we're actually missing, you know, a um, an important part of um, people who could have, um, you know, who who sorry who, who had FGM before they came to Australia. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting point, and you know, one of I guess the reasons that this survey and this report is so important. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I think also, um, if we want to move on to, to women a bit more, um, we um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, HIV focus as well. Um, and I think that spurs off of what we were just talking about, how it's often targeted um, to gay men or men who have sex with men. Um, but we actually found in our survey that, um, you know, the HIV, the, the people who self-identified as having HIV um, were you know, um, sorry, of the people, of, <laughs> um, of the people who, who talked about this, that, that a number of them were women, um, one trans woman and one cis woman. And so they talked about this as an experience, um, but then, you know, it's important to consider that we also need to think about the fact that, um, you know, HIV isn't just a, a, a gay man problem. I think sometimes 
that gets forgotten in some of our targeted advertising and like attempts to support people um, in in, um, in this kind of work. And that was one thing I thought that came up that was really important. Again, to making sure that we create you know services that understand um, that things might be different among you know LGBTIQA plus refugees um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there anything else you wanted to touch on that stood out from the findings? Um, I think it's just really important, um, I guess, lastly, was just to talk about um, women's access to GPs. They were the least likely to have access to a regular GP. Um, and I think that's really um, important to consider um, is that, you know, they, their their health outcomes then become worse because of not having, being able to have access. And that can be because they don't have um, Medicare because they're on bridging visas, but it also might be a number of other reasons. So I think that's an important thing that we could look into um, and understand why that might be the case. And then I think on um, the last point was to think about, um, we've tried to look at different kinds of types of violence that people had before and since their arrival in Australia. And women were the only cohort who experienced high rates of technology-facilitated abuse in Australia. And I think there's a piece here that could definitely use more research to understand, um, you know, why that is and um, how that's being used against, um, yeah, queer refugee women um, within Australia. Absolutely. Uh, what is FDPN planning to use this? Uh, sorry, how is FDPN use, uh, planning to use this data to help improve services um, in the future? Yeah, um, great question. Um, we're trying to reach out to services. Um, specifically, you know, different kinds of settlement services um, to, you know, to give them those, these outcomes, talking about we need more tailored services, we need more inclusive policies, um, there needs to be language accessibility, um, promoting mental health, those sorts of things. So reaching out to, to services and saying, here's the things you need to do, but also here's the things you need to learn, you know, anti-discrimination, anti-racism training. We had a number of people who talked about going to services and, and, you know, feeling discriminated against, which is really, I think, quite an important finding. And you know, the other thing, you know, we're trying to push for for government, um, I would say, is, well, we need more data now that we have the first survey done. We need more data on this. We need more funding for research. And we need to think about some ways to help people to have better health care access across the board um, for this particular cohort as well. That's some of the things we're hoping to make changes at a different level. But also, you know, FDAPN's main, um, you know, goal is also to bring people together. And so, you know, if you're an LGBTIQA plus refugee and, you know, you, need, you want to reach out to someone else who's like that too, you know, they, that they really kind of provide that peer network um, as well. So it's saying there's findings. It's saying we need to make changes at government and service delivery level, but also that, you know, it's important for, for connection in populations as well. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I've just, you know, on 3CR here, we've, we've, you know, focus a lot on women's health and um, LGBTQI plus health and the lack of services and the lack of focus. And I think this report just highlights how much uh, worse that can be for somebody in the position of uh, refugees trying to resettle here in Australia with all the other barriers that come with that. So uh, really appreciate you joining us this morning, Brandy, and, and telling us about this report. We will definitely link to it in our show notes later today. Um, is there somewhere that you know uh, listeners can follow FDPN and learn more? 
Um, yeah, for sure. Um, FTPN has a great Twitter. Um, they do. They also have an Instagram, things like that, and you'll find that on the website. So with the link, people can click through to there, and it'll lead you to all of those different social media um, pieces as well. Amazing. Thank you for joining us this morning, Brandy. Thank you. That was lecturer and researcher Dr. Brandy Cochrane of the Forcibly Displaced People's Network's report on inhabiting two worlds at once. And they were speaking with Kanagi from Tuesday Breakfast. Um, you can find more about the FDPN's refugee sponsorship program on the website. Um, and of course, listen to the full show on the 3CR website. We'll include links to both in our show notes. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. Knocking the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia, is a heavily illustrated 67-chapter book co-edited by Alex Etling and Ian McIntyre, delivering an incisive alternative history of Australia from the bottom up. It includes stories ranging from the convict era resistance through to actions by workers, people with disability and anti-fascists today. Alcohol and pubs' many and varied roles in social change, music, art and more are explored by more than 20 writers. These include Jeff Sparrow, Wendy Bacon, Gary Foley, Diane Kirkby, David Nichols, Tanya Luckins and Graham Willett. Copies can be purchased directly from 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours. To find out more details or buy the book online, visit interventions.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. 
Homesickness by Elder Sky. Think that's something I relate to a lot. Missing home really a lot right now, all the way from Malaysia. Now we're going to be revisiting a conversation with Jan from Tuesday Home Time, 
who spoke to Michael Sheikh from Free Palestine Melbourne about the killings and dispossession in the West Bank while the attention focuses on Gaza. While the world's attention is on the genocide occurring in Gaza, the Zionists are on the rampage in the West Bank, both the illegal settlers and the IDF. I'm speaking with Michael Sheikh from Free Palestine, Melbourne. I just want to give you some context about what's happening in both Gaza and the West Bank by going back to an interview that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did in 1989, in which he said, I quote, Israel should have exploited the repression of the demonstrations in China when the world was focused on that country to carry out mass expulsions among the Arabs of the territories. He was, of course, referring to the Tiananmen Square massacre. And what he was saying was that while the world was looking elsewhere, Israel should have stepped up its ethnic cleansing campaign throughout the occupied territories. And that's exactly what it's been doing. While the world has been focusing on the humanitarian catastrophe in the Gaza Strip and the mass ethnic cleansing going on there, settlers and soldiers in the South Hebron Hills have been successfully depopulating Palestinian villages in the West Bank. At times it just comes down to soldiers and settlers coming to a Palestinian town saying, leave by tomorrow morning or we're going to come in and kill you. Other times, um, now that it's the olive harvest, it involves attacks on farmers so that they can't get their olives. That's part of an ongoing campaign that's been happening for decades. But entire communities have been depopulated in the last six weeks, and many, many more are just on the brink holding on, mainly due to um, support of Israeli and international activists who reduce the amount of actual violence that the soldiers and settlers can inflict upon Palestinians when they're physically present. But it looks like a very successful ethnic cleansing campaign while the world is still talking about whether a command and control center was under Al-Shifa Hospital. Quietly, quietly, pogroms and forced deportations are happening in the West Bank now. And where are those people forced to go? They are forced to move in with relatives in the already desperately overcrowded refugee camps throughout Palestine. That's the thing about ethnic cleansing in Palestine. We all know, or most of us know, about the ethnic cleansing campaign that happened in 1947 and 48 to create the State of Israel, known as Anakba, or the catastrophe to the Palestinians. But that process never stopped. Israel has always been taking over Palestinian land and pushing its people out so that every generation, a new generation is added, uh, of refugees is added to the original Palestinian refugee population as the territory of Palestine becomes smaller and the territory of Israel becomes larger. That's what colonialism is. What about the number of young Palestinians, I would imagine they're young, who have been arrested in the West Bank since October the 7th and languishing in Israeli jails now? Just to once again give you some context, um, there's 4,000 people who've been arrested within Israel, mainly from the Gaza Strip, workers on the Gaza Strip who've been arrested, 
Many of them have been forced to return to Gaza, but 700 have disappeared and nobody knows where they are. Within the West Bank itself, there have been about 3,000 arrests. Most of these are people who are in custody today without having any charge under special administrative detention orders. Most of these arrests occur in the middle of the night and involve the terrorization of the detainee's family, the vandalization of everything in the house, and the humiliation of the detainee in front of their family members. I've been to houses where an arrest or a raid has taken place, and they not only smash up all the furniture and stuff like that, they break the water pipes and, and the plumbing infrastructure and things like that. They steal anything that's not the, that, that they can use and destroy everything else. It also involves the taking of hostages who are relatives of people wanted by Israelis. They not only mistreat and humiliate them, but they upload the videos of their mistreatment onto TikTok so that it's publicized throughout the whole of the occupied territories um, so that the relatives will give themselves up, often to secure the release of someone like their mother or their brother or their sister or, 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 or that kind of thing. So that is a level of violence that's happening throughout the West Bank while the world is looking at Gaza. And the prisoners who have been there for a long time, some been there for years and years, there is stories also that they're being further mistreated in jail. There's been six killings of Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli jails and a lot of other people who've been severely injured by beatings and torture and shooting with rubber bullets um, at very close range. And uh, up from this, you know, there's desperate overcrowding because there's so many new prisoners being forced in cells together. There is denial of medical care. And with the onset of winter, there's a very uh, grave shortage of blankets. Women prisoners in particular have been deprived of a lot of um, their basic necessities. Um, the food is often rotten. The water is foul. A lot of them are hoping that they will be released as part of this um, prisoner exchange um, that's been negotiated with Hamas in exchange for Israeli women and children. The, the violence in Israeli prisons is um, quite shocking by Australian standards. Is it known how many women and children are in Israeli jails and why they are there? Yes, there is, but I don't have that um, at my fingertips. Look, a lot of journalists have been imprisoned and a lot of um, politicians and political activists have been imprisoned. A lot of um, Palestinians within Israel itself and also the West Bank are arrested for things like um, Facebook posts or even liking a Facebook post that is critical of the Israeli government or the apartheid regime in the occupied territories. So it's a case of fear, not only within the prisons, but for those outside the prisons who, who know that they're being watched all the time and that can be arrested for any kind of thought crime even against the occupation. You know, it's illegal not only to carry out protests against the war in Gaza, and I'm talking not in the occupied territories, in Israel itself, and the occupied territories, but supporting 
in social media sentiments that the government considers hostile towards a war can get you in jail for six months without a formal trial and without being charged. They're trying to um, break the spirit of the Palestinians by making them understand that anything, everything they do is being watched and anything they do can lead to their arrest and indefinite imprisonment. Well, they've been trying for 75 years and they haven't managed to break that rule yet and I'm quite sure they won't in the near future. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, um, the, the spirit of the Palestinians to keep on resisting despite the odds has been one of the wonders of the world. It's why they continue to inspire so many oppressed peoples around the world. But Israel also thinks that it can... Well, you know, the logic of power is uh, a moderate of violence doesn't work and the solution is more violence and more violence until you get the insanity that we're seeing in the Gaza Strip today. Israel is becoming more and more fascistic, not only towards Palestinians, but towards dissident Jews. Yeah, you're right. The Palestinians haven't been broken yet, but the Israelis are confident that they will be broken someday and the future will tell. And I'm sure Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank are well aware of the worldwide support from the people of the world for them. Yeah, I've heard, you know, interviews of doctors in the Gaza Strip and, and things like that. And you'd think they'll have better things to worry about than what's happening in Melbourne and London and places like that. But they say how encouraged they are that, you know, ordinary people and Jewish people are standing up and sitting in the offices of politicians and speaking out and calling for boycotts against Israel. Because the thing about the occupation is it makes the Palestinians feel like they're all alone in the world and nobody cares about them in their little dungeons and concentration camps and things like that. And when you see Penny Wong and Albo and uh, Joe Biden and the rest smirking as they cuddle up to Netanyahu and the Israeli lobby... They feel like the whole world's against them. But when they see that ordinary people overwhelmingly support the Palestinian cause and come out again and again to denounce Israel and declare their solidarity as Palestinians, it actually means a hell of a lot to the people on the ground there to know that they're not alone and that we too oppose what our governments are doing. And it's good also, Michael, that the demonstrations have moved beyond the rallies I'm not saying people shouldn't go to the rallies, they should be going in increased numbers, but also other groups are targeting, like you said, the politicians, front door, the docks, different different places to make more people aware of what is being done in our name. It's absolutely amazing. I've been doing this for a long time. I always hoped this day would come where school students, health workers, feminists like Clementine Ford, queer rights activists would all kind of like realise that the Palestinian struggle is their struggle too, stand up, organise, picket politicians' offices. But yeah, it's um, exactly what we always hoped would happen. So that is really great. Obviously, people aren't getting their news from um, the mainstream media, but they um, are appalled not only what's happening in Palestine, but what our government's doing to support it. And they want to be on the right side of history. So it's very encouraging 
like you say, not only that tens of thousands of people are coming out to our rallies week after week, but they're organizing themselves and walking out of their classrooms and calling for the boycott of Israeli products and blocking Zim ships from docking at Botany Bay. That is just um, extremely encouraging news. And BDS is alive and well? BDS is alive and well. Um, I spoke on your show a couple of weeks ago, I believe, about the very successful campaign against RMIT and its ties with the Israeli arms company, Elbit. Unions are getting more active. Actually, they've, they've had um, BDS resolutions on their books for several years now, but they haven't acted on them. But now the push is coming from the grassroots to be more assertive in the BDS campaign. Even after the bomb stopped falling on Gaza, this will, might be a turning point in Palestinian solidarity around the world as more and more unions decide that they're going to join and actively participate in the boycott campaign against Israel. Final words, Michael? We've got to do what we can do. Norman Finkelstein recently, um, who's an expert on Palestine and not someone to kind of like, um, he's been writing about it for decades, long before it became fashionable, even among left-wing academics to write about Palestine, and not someone to get carried away by his emotions. He described what is happening in Gaza today as a genocide. Now, the world has seen other genocides and where it failed to act. I think people understand that when the governments fail, it's up to the people to stand up for what is right. Let's do what we can where we can to stand up in solidarity for the Palestinians who are fighting at the very center of the global struggle against the far right, the ethno-nationalist right, and racism in the 21st century. And that was Jen from Tuesday Home Time speaking to Michael Shaikh from Free Palestine, Melbourne, talking about the killings and dispossession in the West Bank while the attention focuses on Gaza. You can catch Tuesday Home Time, which airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. For more information, you can go to treecr.org.au and look for Home Time Tuesday. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. 
Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Many refugees who still don't have the right to work are feeling the impacts of the cost of living crisis, leaving them unable to put food on the table for their families, let alone afford rent, health care and other essentials. Give to ASRC's end-of-year appeal and help shine a light of hope for refugees and people seeking asylum this festive season. Donate today at asrc.org.au forward slash donate. A3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now we're going to be replaying a segment from last week where I spoke to Adam Zalanik who where we discussed the definition of feminist that was facing controversy and why there's a language reform in South Korea. Now, I'm going to be speaking to Adam Zolanik, who is a teaching specialist, Korean Studies, Asia Institute at University of Melbourne. And we're going to be discussing the definition of feminist in the Korean language and why civic groups want a language reform in South Korea. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No worries. So, Adam, we let's just first look at what does feminist uh, is defined as in South Korea, and why is this a problem at the moment? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for taking interest in my study, um, and and it's very good that you mentioned that this is South Korea. Of course, there are two Koreas. This is the Republic mm-hmm. of Korea, the one where we get all our K-pop, K-drama, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that in Korean fried chicken. Yes. Uh, so in South Korea, the term feminist uh, was initially defined by the National Institute of the Korean Language, which is, we don't have these sorts of institutes here in Australia. We have the Ministry of Education that may work with dictionaries. But in South Korea, we have this one big institute that basically dictates how languages uh, utilized, so creates dictionaries and so on. Uh, they define the term feminist as, uh, one, a person who adheres to or advocates feminism, uh, which wasn't really so problematic, but then B, which is the second definition, someone who reveres women or a man who is kind to women. Now, why is this a problem? Um, Well, the hitch, of course, is that um, this sort of definition portrays feminists as primarily men, and it also completely overlooks the, the broader scope of the feminist movement. The, the broader movement, of course, encompasses various theories and political activism, and it's aimed at eradicating all forms of discrimination against women. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are a lot of uh, women and, and, and men and, and, uh, and, and everyone else uh, who can be termed uh, as, as a feminist. Mm. So the term became quite a contentious issue, um, and particularly during the Me Too movement in the mid to late 2010s uh, in South Korea. I see. So what exactly 
did they want feminists to be defined as? And I think uh, we also should emphasize that there's a difference with understanding what feminist is wanting to be defined as compared to feminism as well? Yes, correct. So um, the civic organization that initially took issue with uh, or discovered uh, these definitions was the Korean Women's Associations United, which is the leading civic group mm. for women in South Korea. Uh, and they believed uh, that um, feminism, uh, which had an okay definition in, in the Korean dictionary, mm. uh, should be defined as a viewpoint advocating the elimination of gender-based political, economic, and sociocultural discrimination. So basically an intersectionality, um, which we can see a lot in, in Western uh, uh, feminism. They, they stressed the importance of a revised definition that acknowledged uh, the diverse nature of the feminist movement um, as addressing discrimination based on class, race, ethnicity, ability, uh, sexual orientation, geographic location, nationality, and also other forms of social exclusion. So, so for them, basically, uh, it, it was about embracing a much more comprehensive understanding of feminism uh, and what it is to be a feminist uh, than what the original definition had suggested. Mm, I see. And how exactly has... South Korea's situation have been dealing with feminism and in 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 the in the sense of gender gender equality in a way. It has been pretty bad, uh, I have to say. Mm. Um, Korea is traditionally uh, a very conservative society. Um, has cornerstones that come from uh, neo Confucianism, which is a very top down um, nature and. Uh, you know, women were not really uh, treated equally uh, mm. within that system. Uh, and over the years, of course, feminism in South Korea has seen changes, especially during the uh, the Me Too movement, which sort mm. of began in the mid-2010s or, or 16, when women started coming forward and talking about uh, sexual violence um, in different sectors, professional sectors like politics, um, but also the... Um, K-pop industry, for example. Mm. And groups like the People's Solidarity for Participatory Democracy, which is the largest civic group in South Korea, which um, combines lots of different smaller civic groups like the Korean Women's Association United, they have actively championed gender equality and challenged societal norms in South Korea. Um, you know, mm. really sort of trying to, to change these things. And, of course, uh, when this term was noticed, uh, it was within this context of the Me Too movement in, in South Korea. Mm, I see. And according to, according to article, this person um, named Cho Jong-do, who is the curator of the Standard Korean Language Dictionary, yeah. he mentioned that the, fam the term feminist has been historically defined as quote, wife-fearer or wife-fearing husband. So is there a reason why this, it was defined this way? Like, historically, how how were these definitions created? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, uh, dictionary definitions in South Korea, as is the case in, in many countries, uh, are shaped by historical perspectives and societal attitudes. So once again, uh, Confucian values, uh, but also uh, really the dictionaries. And, and sources, resources that are used to compile these dictionaries. So the, the research that I'm doing at the moment is actually looking at the origins of uh, the very 
word feminism, the very term in South Korea, to see where this definition, which was found to be problematic, actually stemmed from. And I found that uh, there's actually an almost identical definition in Japanese dictionaries as well, mm. uh, which often tend to have a longer history. And, and a lot of Korean dictionaries, because obviously South Korea is a much um, younger nation in terms of just a republic of Korea, mm. Uh, they tended to be based on Japanese dictionaries, sometimes with Japanese dictionaries just translated almost verbatim um, into Korean. So it's very interesting to see that very old Japanese dictionaries, for example, also have uh, that sort of definition of feminist with um, it being defined as a man who is kind towards women. But they also have a notation which states that uh, this usage is not used in English. It's not a usage that you can find in the English language, mm, mm. Uh, which is very interesting and would suggest that maybe there's also a case of feminist having um, it, its definition changed a little bit over time within the context, almost to become a false friend in a way. Uh, and there are many of these words, in, especially in, in Japanese, so loan words, uh, that actually mean very different things now. Mm. But of course, there is an issue where we have a word which sounds the same and, and also, you know, comes to represent the feminist movement uh, and then also maybe has this other meaning, which is very demeaning. Uh, so the terms that Choi jong who is the, the former curator of the um, Korean dictionary, uh, when, when he used terms like wife theory and wife lover, uh, these were Sino-Korean uh, for character words, mm. uh, which are used uh, in not just Korean, but also Chinese and Japanese. So really, they do show us that um, there is a much broader issue. It's not just an issue of, I guess, Korea. It, it, it is something that's really deeply ingrained uh, in at least, because I only specialize in Japan and Korean and no bit of Chinese, uh, those three nations. But also, you know, may very well be the case in, in other societies in, in Asia as well. Mm, I see. And I, I think... When it comes to dictionaries in South Korea, a lot of them rely on the nav on Neva, which is like their right. online Korean dictionary. Yep. And then, so why do you think this dictionary uh, significantly plays uh, plays a significant role in protecting the ideology of feminism and women? And does this affect the global context? Yes, it's a very good question. Mm. Uh, so just to outline Naver a little bit more, it's it's a mega portal. Uh, we don't really have this con um, concept as much in in other countries outside of uh, Korea. Also in Japan, they have Yahoo. Mm -hmm. uh, in China, you might have Weibo and, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, in Korea, it's Naver. And if you go into this portal, uh, it's not just a search engine or a dictionary. It's everything, basically, that you mm -hmm. need in your everyday life on the Internet. So yes. there's shopping, there's news. Um, dictionary. So there's really very high accessibility. Uh, it's not like, you know, in maybe in Australia, you'd have to whip out your Collins dictionary or Webster dictionary mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of search through it to, to find a word during a class activity. It's, it's a resource that's really very highly utilized in South Korea. People use dictionaries quite a lot. And so the, the accessibility is very, very high. Um, now, the influence of dictionaries on our understanding of ourselves um, and including, you know, movements like, like the feminist movement uh, has much broader implications for equality. Um, biased definitions can perpetuate gender stereotypes. Um, they can hinder efforts for true gender equality. 
Uh, and, and I think that this ongoing controversy really reflects sort of societal debates and gender roles, um, and it really affects public perception and, and discourse as well. So it's really crucial to address uh, issues like this for a more inclusive society in South Korea. And whilst doing so, um, and this is where the global aspect comes in, really uh, contribute to global discussions on gender equality. Um, mm. And, you know, particularly in, in Asia, um, I would say uh, Korea, of course, prides itself on its cultural exports. I mean, mm. we all know about the Korean wave, about BTS and so on. Mm. Uh, so it has this really exciting sort of... Um, aspect to it and and it it has a very high visibility i would say on the world scene so i think really south korean society and and the government uh which you know leads initiatives like this institute of the language uh need to step forward and really look at um societal issues like this um you know treatment of women uh also uh various racial issues as well um so i think it's, it's it's very very important um, that uh, this is looked at, if the Korean wave and, and how we perceive South Korea is sort of not to be impacted. So it, it, it's also an economical issue, you could say, um, mm. oh, okay. which which is something that I think often we, it, it's not nice to think about, but it is important um, considering that, you know, the government, it, it's probably what means the most to the government, unfortunately, um, in, in, in these sorts of contexts. So it, it's definitely something that, that needs to be looked into and investigated. Mm, I see. Uh, well, other, unfortunately, we're running out of time already. Uh, so just one last question for you. How, so, we, so now that we know that the dictionary obviously plays a very big role because it's, like, it's, not, it's not just a dictionary uh, that NAVA has that helps to define definitions for when it comes to feminism. It's also mm-hmm. a very big platform to know a lot of stuff in regards to South Korea in general and obviously every, a lot yeah. of things that is in Korean language. So do you, how, how do you see the path is going to move forward with South Korea's understanding towards e- equality? Is this going to be something that will hopefully soon be good news in terms of getting the right definition there or how is it going to be there? Well, there is some good news in that in 2018, um, the Institute of the National Language um, got a new director, uh, Mm. and the new director is a woman, and Mm. uh, she's a professor at uh, Seoul National University, which is the largest um, and highest-ranked university in South Korea. Mm. And she actually made some announcements. This was back in 2000, and uh, actually at the start of um, this year and towards the end of last year, um, that... There were issues uh, with definitions within the dictionary that were outdated and did not reflect on um, current sort of standards and norms in society, uh, and that the institute would be looking at making um, really widespread revisions um, to to make amends. Now, I haven't seen this happen yet, mm-hmm. uh, and there are also, I guess, problems with money. Um, I think um, she mentioned that there would be you know, it would be a few million dollars um, that would be required for this project, which takes, you know, about five to ten years, whereas the funding that they get annually is, um, I think, one-tenth of that or or less. So there isn't an issue of money. So I predict that um, there may be some minor changes um, within dictionaries, perhaps, but within society, really, the key or current administration uh, with President Yoon Song-yo uh, 
he has been criticised as well a little bit um, mm. in, in terms of his stance towards uh, women and, and, and feminism. Um, you know, I think, yeah, th- there'll be a lot of uh, pressure required for, for there to be changes. But, I mean, you never know. And I am hopeful um, mm. that things will improve in, in, in the near future, in the next 10 years or so. Let's hope that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been lovely having you on our show. Likewise. And thank you for having me. Thank you. And that was Adam Zolanik, teaching specialist, Korean studies at, at the Asia Institute of University of Melbourne, discussing the definition of feminist in the Korean language and why civic groups want a language reform in South Korea. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3cr and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country contact us at books and boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Uncover the depths of human connection and power in the new opera by Evan Lawson and Nicole Butcher, The Sea. This visceral exploration of love, lust and the corrupting influence of power in relationships washes over you in this extraordinary collaboration between Forest Collective and BK Opera. The Sea plays from the 7th until the 10th of December at Abbotsford Convent. Tickets available from forestcollective.com.au Forest Collective is a 3CR supporter. For a quart of wine Take up thin, right or wrong In the cold and in the heat We'd cross over Smith Street To the end of the line And we love and sing Do anything To take away the pain Trying to keep it down As it first went round In charcoal lane 
Well, spinning yarns and telling jokes. Now the wine is tasting good. Cause it's getting closer and closer to its end. So have a sip and roll some smokes. We'd smoke tailor mates if we could. But we just made do with some city street land. And then we'd all tuck in and we'd start to grin when we had enough to do it again. But if things got tight, we had to bite for charcoal lane. Up Gertrude Street, we'd walk once more with just a few cents short. And we stopped at the builders to see who we could see. And we'd bite around until we'd score a flag in old McWilliams Port. Just enough to take away our misery And then we'd all get drunk Oh, so drunk And maybe a little insane And we'd stagger home All alone And the next day we'd do it again have a revival in charcoal lane oh i'm a survivor of charcoal lane yeah that was the 30th anniversary edition of Charcoal Lane by the legendary Archie Roach. And now we're going to be joined by Dr. Julia Dem, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Law at La Trobe University, Melbourne. Her research addresses international and domestic climate and environmental law, natural resource governments, human rights, and economic inequality. And we'll be talking about the COP28 that's going on right now. Dr. Julia Dem, thanks for coming on to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. So just to set the scene, what is the COP28 all about this year? So firstly, just a bit of background. COP stands for Conference of the Parties, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. This convention was agreed upon and opened for signature back in 1992. And since 1995, there have been regular annual meetings. And this COP also serves as the meeting of the parties for the 2015 Paris Agreement. Mm. So the annual COP is a chance for negotiators from countries all around the world to come together. It's become a big sort of media event with heads of state, celebrities, NGOs, civil society groups and academics all in attendance of this two-week conference. So this year there were over 100,000 people attending. The meeting started on Thursday, the 30th of November, and is set to finish on Tuesday, 
although based on past conferences, I expect it to run over by a day or two. So this year, the COP's held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and the president of the conference is Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber. And this has been really controversial because Al-Jaber heads the Abu Dubai National Oil Company. And so you're shocked that a CEO of a fossil fuel company is heading up the climate conference. You're certainly not alone. Mm. And leaked briefing documents revealed that United Arab Emirates planned to use its role as the host of the conference as an opportunity to strike more oil and gas deals. So there's been growing concerns about this corporate capture of the COP. This year, there are almost 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists at the talks. And this is more than the total attendees from the 10 countries that are most vulnerable to climate change. So there's real questions that we need to ask about this COP structure itself. And I think it's also worth noting that in the 30 years that we've been meeting um, almost annually about to talk about climate change are also the 30 years in which half of all the greenhouse gases that are currently in the atmosphere have been emitted. Well, wow, that definitely is concerning. So what are the key issues that are being talked about this year? Yep, so arguably the test of the success of the summit will be whether there's any concrete commitments on phasing out fossil fuels. So although fossil fuels are the primary driver of climate change, they've hardly been mentioned in the international climate regime um, until 2021 at COP26 in Glasgow where there was a paragraph in the final text that called for, and I quote, accelerating efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power and the phase down of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So there's a lot of caveats in that language, unabated, inefficient, no timelines and no targets. So the key will be to get a much stronger text this year. The other big thing that's on the agenda is what's called this global stock tank. So the Paris Agreement that was agreed to in 2015 um, included an agreement that parties would periodically take stock of the implementation of the agreement, sort of check how we're going and see how we can do better. And so the first such global stock takes happening this year. So there's been a couple of steps already. They've gathered all the relevant information to assess how we're going. This data was evaluated in a technical report published in September and it found that we're not on track to meet the Paris Agreement targets to limit warming to um, at least two degrees or pursue efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. That current efforts would see temperatures rise by disastrous 2.5 to 2.9 degrees. And therefore, that ambition and implementation really need to be accelerated rapidly. And so what needs to be worked out now at the COP is how we respond to that assessment. And the text that will be developed is about giving directions to countries for when they update the next climate commitments in um, 2025. And so the draft text about sort of providing guidance about what we're expecting to see from countries in their next round of commitments still has a lot of square brackets, which means that the text hasn't yet been decided, particularly around crucial questions such as scaling up renewable energy, around carbon capture and storage and what role it might play, phase out of fossil fuels and phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, human rights and a lot of other areas of contention. Well, that's great. There's a lot on the table, it seems. We'll get there to, is definitely a lot on the table. We'll get to phasing out fossil fuels in a minute. But I just want to ask, there's a lot of talk about loss and damage and loss and damage finance. What are these? Sure. So loss and damage refers to the impacts of climate change that can't be mitigated against or adapted to. So that is this increased severity and intensity of extreme weather events that we're seeing around the world. 
bushfire, typhoons, hurricanes that are having such a devastating impact um, on people, um, as well as slow onset events, rising sea levels, desertification. And so already we're seeing 5 million deaths a year linked to climate change and climate disasters are costing at least $100 billion annually. And these figures are projected to increase as climate change intensifies. And we also know that those who did the least to cause the climate crisis are most vulnerable to these climate impacts. And that's financial loss and damage is such a crucial climate justice issue. Mm. So the question of loss and damage has been raised by small island states who are most vulnerable to climate change before the UNFCCC was even negotiated. However, there's no reference to loss and damage in any of the texts until 15 years later in 2017. In 2013, we had sort of a breakthrough agreement to establish this Warsaw mechanism on loss and damage. And while this mechanism has done some important work on cooperation and facilitation in relation to loss and damage, it hasn't really addressed what's the most fraught issue, family money. The Paris Agreement also noted the importance of averting and minimising and addressing loss and damage, um, but an accounting decision said that the provision does not involve or provide a basis for any liability or compensation. But civil society groups have continued to push for finance from developed countries to developing countries for loss and damage. Um, and last year at the COP in Egypt, there was a really breakthrough agreement to establish a loss and damage fund due to this pressure from climate justice groups and countries in the global south. However, crucially, it didn't establish any requirement for developed countries to actually provide money to the fund. Um, and then throughout this year, there was a number of meetings of a transitional committee about operationalising this fund. Right. There's a lot of work being done there. Are there any updates on loss and damage uh, finance this year? Yeah, so that was one of the first decisions from this COP was to operationalise this loss and damage fund. Um, and that was basically confirming the agreement that had been reached um, a few weeks earlier at the Transitional Committee meeting. And this was obviously widely celebrated by climate justice groups because this fund and finance for loss and damage is something that's been called upon for so long. However, it's also worth remembering there's a couple of key limitations. So, as I said, there's no requirement for countries of the global north to actually pay into the fund. And so the amount voluntarily pledged to date, about $700 million, really pales in insignificance to the sums that are needed. It's less than 0.2% of the estimate $400 billion in economic and non-economic losses developing countries face every year from global warming. So there's a massive, massive gaping gap there. Also, the World Bank has been made the trustee of this fund on a temporary basis, which is something that was pushed for by the US but strongly opposed by climate justice groups in countries of the global south, given the World Bank's long history of imposing neoliberal austerity on countries of the global south, and its continuing role in financing the climate crisis. There's also a lot of concerns about how we make sure that these funds are actually accessible to the people on the ground who need them and to ensure that fi climate finance is delivered as grants rather than as loans that would have, you know, repayments, interest and conditionalities attached to them. Right, sounds so like a still... great, like a good step forward, but a lot of, a lot of things that still, um, are problematic in that agreement. Yeah, sounds like there's still a lot more work to be done. Uh, you mentioned the the debate on phasing out and phasing down on fossil fuels. Uh, what What's the difference between these two things? Sure. So that's sort of really at the last minute at the Glasgow COP back in 2021. 
India insisted on a last-minute change in the language from phase out to phase down, and then phase down was the language in the final text adopted. And generally speaking, phase out is seen as a much stronger term, meaning a radical reduction in fossil fuel burning to zero or close to zero, um, while phase down is a much weaker term, implying that fossil fuel use should decline, but doesn't really say by how much or when. And there's been... So generally the draft texts are talking about phase out, but there have been some suggestions that language of phase down might still get slipped into the into the text. Um, Al Jabir um, controversially earlier in the week said that there's no science out there that says the phase out of fossil fuels is needed to achieve 1.5 degrees, and this is clearly not correct. There's a lot of peer-reviewed scientific research that has shown that the existing carbon budget for 1.5 degrees will be used up by existing um, fossil fuel um, mines and infrastructure. And the International Energy Agency has confirmed that no new fossil fuel developments can, be, can proceed Sorry, if we are to achieve um, net zero. And so the other thing, language that's really controversial in the text is this word abated or unabated. And so in the background of all these debates is the contested role of carbon capture and storage, or BECS, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So carbon capture and storage entails capturing, transporting and storing greenhouse gas emissions by injecting captured greenhouse gases back into the ground, while BECS is premised on growing biomass, generally trees, um, and then extracting the bioenergy from the biomass and then capturing and storing the carbon, thereby removing it from the atmosphere. Mm. And it's therefore seen as this negative emissions technology because it draw emissions down from the atmosphere. But the problem with um, both these sort of um, technologies is so far there's been no evidence that they would be viable at scale. The trials that have been conducted have only been able to store very small amounts of emissions at huge costs. And these, um, so even though they've sort of been described by some as carbon unicorns, they're consistently being promoted to justify the continued extraction of fossil fuels. And we've seen this again and again in these debates at COP28. Um, so the debates about the inclusion of the word abate in the text are really references about whether or not um, the international community sort of is endorsing um, carbon capture and storage as an abatement technology. Right. So what are deliberations looking like on phasing out fossil fuels at this point? Yeah, so there's still a couple of key tensions. So Saudi Arabia and Russia um, are refusing to talk about fossil fuels. They only want to talk about emissions, not the fossil fuels that cause them. The Secretary-General of OPEC recently wrote to members asking them to reject any language that targeted fossil fuels in the final summit deal, which is widely seen as them sort of panicking that this language would be included. China and India have not explicitly endorsed a fossil fuel phase-out and they're preferring to talk about renewable energy. Um, however, there are 80 countries, including most of the climate-vulnerable countries, but also the US and the European Union, who want some sort of language on fossil fuels. Minister Bowen has said Australia might be willing to sign up to a COP28 call to phase out fossil fuels, which is positive, although I think the key thing will now be what sort of wording is adopted, and there's still like about four or five different options in the draft text that was released a couple of days ago. One talks about a phase out of fossil fuels in line with best available science. Another one adds on to that the need to be in line with 1.5 degree pathways and principles and provisions of the Paris Agreement. Another option includes unabated fossil fuels and adds a timeline of um, peaking their consumption in this decade. 
And the, another one talks about phasing out, the sort of the weakest one talks about phasing out unabated fossil fuels to rapidly reduce their use to achieve net zero CO2 by mid-century. So there's sort of key debates there about what sort of timelines, what sort of targets, and whether this sort of language of unabated um, comes back into the text, as well as that risk that language of phased down might get inserted um, at the last minute. Sounds like it'll come down to the wire. Yeah, I think that's very likely. Now, we're coming up on time, but just one last question. Do you think it's too early to tell if COP28 will be a success or will it be limited in its outcomes? Look, it's a really, I think, like we just said, it will come down to the wire and it's still a lot of questions up in the air about how these things will be resolved. But I think, like, one important announcement that Australia's already made there is a commitment to end um, aid finance for fossil fuel expansion overseas. So previously our export credit agency... Export Finance Australia between 2009 and 2020 spent $1.7 billion on coal projects. This is a really welcome development. But I think this question of fossil fuel phase-out is critical. So a recent report by Oil Change International showed that just 20 countries are responsible for 90% of the CO2 from new oil and gas fields and fracking wells. And just five countries in the global north are responsible for 50% of this expansion, United States, Canada... Norway, United Kingdom and Australia. And so I think what happens here is really crucial to push for change in Australia and globally. And I think from what I said, that was seen, you know, half the emissions um, currently in the atmosphere happening in this time the international community has been engaged in these negotiations points to the limits of um, what the international regime has been able to achieve. So I think we can say safely that the COP outcomes not going to save us one way or the other. But what I'm hoping for is that the COP will deliver some sort of language that then can be mobilised by activists and campaigners on the ground in Australia and around the world in ongoing struggles against fossil fuel expansion to expand renewable energy. So that's sort of what I'm hoping for at the moment, that we get some strong language out of the COP (coughs) that provides a principled basis, that um, principled position that can be mobilised in ongoing activism and campaigning to try and fight for um, a safer climate. Thank you, Julia, Dr Julia Dem, for your time. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr Julia Dem, a senior lecturer in the School of Law at La Trobe University, Melbourne. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat-affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. The 11th annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices including $1,000 for best film. 
For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. You're here on Monday Breakfast on 855 AM 3CR and that just about does it for the program. Mm. What's on for the rest of the week, gang? Chilling, have spending time with my family and, yep, celebrating Christmas in a way with them after a long time as well. So, yeah. cool stuff there. How are you, Rob? Um, I have my weightlifting competition oh, on yes. Saturday. <laughs> yes. Good luck. Um, so, which... To be honest, I'm really glad it is actually finally here because it's been a bit of a slog trying to get to this Pumped point. Yeah. Um, so once Saturday happens, I just can just relax for the rest of the year and they'll be, you know, just cruising to Christmas, really. Yeah, Christmas time. And this is our last program for the year before mm. we go on summer yeah. break. Mm. It's been very yeah. enjoyable for the yeah. past... I think we started Monday about... Three months back? Is it? Has it been three months at least? Probably. <laughs> Seems a while. So yeah. yeah, probably. It's been a lot yep. of fun. Yeah. Well, great interview, uh, James. Oh, thank you. I really like that one. Um, I just wanted to share a statistic that I came across over the weekend about COP28. Um, the figures were calculated by the Kick Polluters Out Coalition. Um, and they say that the number of official Indigenous representatives at COP28 is 316, whereas the number of fossil fuel lobbyists outnumber them 7 to 1, with 2,456 of them at COP28. Well, there you go. That's a good note to finish on. This has yep. been Monday Breakfast. Thank you for listening. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.